All right, cats and kittens, we are back to another very special, oh my God, such a very special episode of the Brando Cast. I'm so excited about this fucking show today that I'm just going to start right now because I am sitting here through the power of Squadcast talking with one of the most goddamn talented people in the United States of America, someone who is fucking crushing it on one of the best programs known to man. And if you are not binging Better Call Saul during this coronavirus, then you've got a big problem. Hopefully you've already seen it because if you have, you know that there are few people more mighty than the mighty Ray Seahorn. (laughs) Wow. What an intro. (laughs) I want you to start all of my days with that intro. Well, you know, you can, you can take this little recording. I can maybe make a little ringtone for you. So every time your phone rings, you might hear me saying the mighty Ray Seahorn. Exactly. Um, It is so great to see you. I have not seen you in person in quite some time because you have been a very busy individual. You have been living outside of the city of Los Angeles for chunks of time because you are in my teenage hometown, Albuquerque, New Mexico. (laughs) Exactly. Albuquerque. And I am going to apologize to you up front. I do not want to turn this into a, I could talk to you about Albuquerque for a full hour. I could talk to you about Albuquerque for a full week, but there is zero question that I'm going to nerd out. And I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about Albuquerque because you're living there for how many, when you guys are in production, how many months are you in Albuquerque? Uh, four and a half to five months at a time. Oh, shit. Okay. So you are there living. Can you, without giving away the farm, can you give me a general idea of the area of my town that you're living in? Um, well, we've switched around because we, we rent places um, diff- in different places each time, uh, except for last year, um, Bob Odenkirk and his wife, Naomi, bought a house. And so we rent that. Patrick Fabian and Bob Odenkirk and I live together while filming. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Do you live at 2608 Wisconsin Northeast? Is that the house you live (laughs) in? I found your books. Hopefully there's a bag of concert t-shirts up in the attic of our old house because when I left for college, my mother threw out all my 80s concert t-shirts or took them to Goodwill and they were so lost to the sand of time. Bag? My brothers and I, she claims that she did not throw stuff out, that she literally took the stuff that was in a cedar closet and put them in a bag. She swears on the Holy Bible that she didn't give them away, but we know that that is not true because we have looked everywhere high and low for those garbage bags of 80s concert t-shirts because your friend Brendan went to every single heavy metal show in Albuquerque, New Mexico between, I would say, 1980 and 1987-1988. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And, and there were some valuable goddamn t-shirts in there, including Van Halen 1984 tour, Rush Signals, Grace Under Pressure, Power Windows stuff. Uh, I had a great ZZ Top shirt because uh, all the shows back in the 80s were at Tingley Coliseum on the New Mexico State Fairgrounds. And now that you know the city a little bit, you know that young Brendan Smith, even in seventh grade, could take the city bus to the state fairgrounds to go see Cheap Trick Rainbow, Dio, Ozzy, 
I mean, I think, you know, the only time I've been out to the fairgrounds is trying to watch that goddamn balloon rise dawn patrol thing. And every time I get up and haul my ass out there with no sleep, it, they don't go up because of wind conditions. Um, let me tell you what the bane of my childhood existence was being woken up at four o'clock in the morning by my mother because she wanted to get us to the Coronado mall yes. in time to get on the buses that would take you to the launch pad. Oh yeah. I got on those buses every, <laughs> yeah. I got on those buses, um, twice. And then I think a, a, a driving trip was the third attempt. And I just stopped. I just stopped. I was like, whatever, I'll get the postcards. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> have you been up in a hot air balloon? No, I don't really have any desire to. And I didn't, I haven't done the, um, what's the, the tram thing to, uh, the tram the yeah by Lalu's trail and all that and here's the thing it's not a height thing with me both the balloon and the tram issue for me is that i have severe motion sickness when things rock slowly and so it's the fact that it might sway or i might be hung out there even the um it's gotten worse over the years too even a i don't i rarely ski um but when I am trapped in a place where everyone's making me do it, it, the lift is the worst part of the entire experience to me. So yeah, I haven't done it. I haven't been up in the balloon. You know what I loved about the fairgrounds though, when I would go to try to watch, and I'm sure you've explained to your listeners what uh, the dawn, what is it called? Dawn rise of it, dawn something, when these hot air balloons go up. And it is beautiful. I've seen video and I've been told from all the other cast members who seem to be able to go see it, just not me. (laughs) Um, But when you get out there, what's fascinating is you're out there, as you know, pitch black first before the sun comes up. And the whole place looks like Coney Island with like funnel cake, people drinking beers, eating uh, corn dogs, fried dough at like four in the morning with tiny children in strollers and clowns and shit completely acting like it's normal. (laughs) It was so weird. The highlight, the only reason to go out there to allow our mother to take us out to the mass ascension and get out there at five o'clock before the sun came up was for the Indian fry bread and the funnel cakes. There was no, that I, I could handle that, but the rest was just, it was such a drag. That is tremendous. Are you guys, did Odenkirk buy a house? I won't, I know every inch of that city, I'll just do a general area because I don't want to give away the farm. Are you guys near the university? Are you up in the Heights? Are you in a cool section of the Valley, like off Rio Grande somewhere? Where, where are you living? We are, um, to be quite honest, I don't completely know the name of this section. It's between two sections. It is, I would say yes, somewhat close to the university. Yeah. But, uh, we we're always trying to make sure that we, even we, even though we shoot so many locations and not that much stage work, we try to be close to the stage because it's the best you can do to try to, um, shorten their commute. But we have also all been up in, uh, what's it called? Um, over by Las Poblanos farms. Oh, okay. That's, that's the Valley. Okay, that, we've been over uh, there. Los, Los we're Rancho. not there now. Yeah, you're not there now. Okay. No, and that, and when we were over there, we were a little bit south of Los Poblanos because we would all walk to um, not Collected Works. What's the books? The Collected Works is Santa Fe, right? What's the bookstore right there in that mid-century modern building? And it's right. with the Mexico. diner. 
um, Flying, the Flying Star. Star. The Flying Star, uh, the Rio Grande. Yeah, yes. so you guys were down there near Dietz Farms. Bookworks, right? Bookworks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, the funny thing about Los Poblanos, when I was in high school, um, uh, one of the uh, rich Albuquerque kids, uh, Jay Remby, his family owned that place. Um, they and he had uh, parties back there before it was a kind of a bed and breakfast uh, wedding place. He was like one of the pr- young princes of Albuquerque. I went to the Albuquerque Academy, uh, which is the fancy private school up in the Heights. But most of the kids were from that exact area that you were just describing. Okay. They all lived in those on all those beautiful adobe homes along Rio Grande past. Uh, and my ex-girlfriend's uh, parents live right across the street from Bookworks. Okay. Uh, so that that Flying Star Cafe is, um, if I was to go home and go there on a Saturday morning, I would know half the people in there, uh, which is also true of the Frontier on Central, uh, which is where the other half of the people that I know are on a Saturday morning in Albuquerque. Yes. I've definitely, we, uh, we haven't lived together all five seasons. And so when we were not all together, where do we have, oh, we also all had a, all had a house in, is it Ridgecrest? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We had a house there one time. Um, and then when we were separate, um, I want to say, uh, la, 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 la. where was I that one time? Um, shoot. I don't, I don't ever know the names of the people. I've been closer to central too, which is fun, but can be noisy. And we sleep at such weird hours. Um, that's always fun when you're renting and you know, you have to show up to these, um, short term rental places. Um, and uh, sometimes the first thing that some of the landlords or homeowners say, and it's not Airbnb because we were doing longer stays in that and we need like Wi-Fi to be on and um, cable to be on and all that. But they'll, I remember the first couple of times I was looking for a house, the owners kept saying stuff like, now I don't want anybody coming and going late at night. I like it to be quiet by 11. <laughs> I'm thinking, dude. I don't remember the last time we were done by 11 p.m. I don't know what to tell you about that. And I don't really like, yeah, and she was like, I don't really like noise early morning. I was like, I have 4 a.m. calls, so I don't think this is going to work. Oh, my God. That is tremendous. I'm not going to bore every, well, I am going to bore everybody because I know I'm going to come back to Albuquerque uh, with Ray because I just, I love watching the show so much because anytime someone says, I'm at a weird building on Indian school or uh, go down to that office, it's on Lomas. uh, It just fills me with an odd, (laughs) an odd pride. And the landscape is a part of my soul. So it is one of my favorite things about watching the show. But the, the biggest thing is you are crushing it as Kim Wexler. Thanks. And I I truly hope that Emmy is knocking on your door because you fucking deserve it. <laughs> I gave I gave up on guessing any of that. <laughs> like, <I don't> know. <laughs> but you know, you're 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 in a you're in a group of heavy fucking hitters too. That's the other thing that's amazing about that show. I mean, the just uh, Giancarlo Esposito and oh, Patrick's great. The, yeah. the whole cast is I mean, Odin Kirk is ridiculous. Michael McKeon was bonkers it's just uh it's just amazing so i just want to say to you congratulations i'm honored that you're here you look amazing you sound amazing and so without further ado we're going to play the game of the brando cast today and what i'm going to do with my friend ray is we are going to talk about 80s new wave movies ray was kind enough ray was kind enough to give me uh, a few clues about what some of her favorite uh film soundtracks were 
And so without further ado, I'm going to say that Richard Sheltinga is playing Pretty in Pink right now, and that can only mean one thing. Pretty in Pink is a 1986 teen romantic comedy about love and social cliques in American high schools. A cult classic, it is commonly identified as a brat-back film. It was directed by Howard Deutsch and written by John Hughes, and was named after the song by the Psychedelic Furs. The film stars Molly Ringwald, John Cryer as Ducky, Andrew McCarthy, and The Spader. The great soundtrack includes If You Leave by OMD, Shell Shock by New Order, and of course, the title song which you're hearing right now, Pretty in Pink. Pretty in Pink. uh, Betsy, our dear friend Betsy Thomas, our mutual friend, lives around the corner from Ducky. Uh, and I can, every time I see that boy, I either think of Pretty in Pink or, or I think of If You Leave by OMD because that's the scene where Molly Ringwald chooses Andrew McCarthy and she's not going to try to make a run of it with her friend John Cryer. Yep. And first of all, do you think he hates that or do you think he's fine with that? My take on John Cryer every time I see see him is that this is a man at peace with himself. This is a oh, guy who is probably too rich to care. Ducky has uh, stood the test of time, which is yeah. the ultimate test. An amazing character in a hilarious movie, and uh, he just seems like a good guy. So now, I read somewhere, and I don't actually know if this is true, but I read that they filmed... Uh, an ending where she picks John Cryer and test audiences hated it. I would have been in the, I would have preferred that. Okay. Wait, wait, time out. You would have preferred Molly Ringwald ending up with Ducky. 100%. (laughs) 100%. Because did you feel like their bond was more uh, grounded and rooted in actual real love rather than physical beauty and two hot people should be together. What was the math? What was the emotional math you were doing? He was cooler and funnier and actually um, made efforts uh, to show her that he appreciated who she was and, um, and that he, you know, actually liked the substance of who she was versus, I mean, what did Andrew McCarthy decided to not, he decided to be less of a dick as a, as a peace offering. Like I, okay, I won't hang out with my, my friend who for some reason looks like he's 10 years older than us with his shirt unbuttoned. What was his, was it Blaine? It was Blaine, right? <laughs> yes. And he's like, yeah, his peace offering was, you know what? I decided to not hang out with absolute dicks um, to hang out with you. And uh, there's my, there's my gift. There's my gift to you. Want to be my girlfriend? I just didn't, I didn't understand what they saw in each other at all. But I'm also sure that at the time, it's funny watching these movies now. I watch them um, with my awesome stepsons and I was dying for them to be old enough to watch them. And now we've watched all the John Hughes films because I was such an obsessed John Hughes film fan. And I, I am embarrassed to say that, I, and like many other people I've talked to, uh, I was not aware of how offensive some things are in them. Um, everything from, you know, a character named Long Duck Dong to, yeah. And also, like, it's 16 Candles, where she, she uh, so Molly Ringwald's at Jake's. He's our good guy. He's the popular good-looking guy who's actually sweet and really likes her. And they, and she 
gets an invite to his big giant bash party and he's there with the girlfriend was her name debbie she was blonde and she was a cheerleader and there was an extended shower scene where you got to see her awesome rack i remember that and <laughs> um, <laughs> but girlfriend popular girlfriend has gotten drunk and passed out in jake's room Remember, and like for what I forget how, but somehow she gets her hair cut in the door and they cut it off as well. But she's completely wasted. Our good guy, Jake, is annoyed that she's that kind of person that there's no substance to her. So we actually would rather hang out with Molly Ringwald. And, and I remember watching the movie going, like, yes, because I was definitely not in the. <laughs> Um, lo looks like a model taking a shower with a great rack. I was, I was in Molly Ringwald's camp. So, you know, you're cheering cause you got picked. I got picked. <laughs> and then, so my, I'm watching it with the boys. I was like, I love this movie. And then he, Jake, good guy, Jake picks up a completely wasted, almost comatose girlfriend and gives her as a, as a gift to Anthony Michael Hall and his friend. And I think says something to the degree of, uh, have a great night. Yep. A hundred percent. Where's the remote? Where's the remote? Pause, 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 pause. Cause my boys are 11 and 13. I was like, we need to be very clear. <laughs> we do not offer drunk women to people, whether they're your girlfriend or someone on the street, <laughs> you immediately return them to their parents as fast as you possibly can. If you are drunk, then both of you sit still with all your clothes on frozen <laughs> until the morning. <laughs> this is an incredible point because I will say as a Gen X dude, as a hardcore Gen X dude who graduated high school in 1986, all of these movies, the message was clear. If you want a hot girl, you have to trick her into liking you. Yes. If you're not the captain of the football team, not only do you have to trick her into liking you, you have to get her drunk to make out with her. Every single one of these movies has the scene that you just described. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and even the ones that didn't, Breakfast Club, I watch, uh, and I still love that movie, but, and I was like, wow, this one tracks a little better for right now. Um, and I know there are stereotypes um, in all of these movies, but I, was explaining to an adult friend of mine too that at the time not a lot of movies were speaking to teenagers and teenage experiences as though they were real and mattered they were sort of made fun of so if you were 13 to 18 watching these um you felt like somebody you know later we had freaks and geeks and even the wonder years and my so-called life um but at the time, there weren't a lot of movies that weren't making fun of us and how important the prom was or, or having to wear headgear and being made fun of, not wanting someone to see where you live and class issues and all of that that really were going on. So, and for me, pretty my, my dad was an alcoholic and died from it. So Pretty in Pink was the first time I remember it being okay to say you can say my dad's awesome and an alcoholic and those can both coexist as two definitions of them because well, her dad was you know Harry, the great harry dean stanton and he was actually lovable and doing the best he could but he was legit an alcoholic i have said a number of times a an important plot twist in pretty and pink could have been molly going to alateen but they didn't write that into the movie because <laughs> right because back then, oh, well, dad's in bed. Harry yeah. Dean is in bed. 
Oh, oh well. my God. Let me say. Yeah, but any pots is going to help you make a prom dress. So it's all. <laughs> Let me say one thing about these films and your friend Brendan and Albuquerque, because here is the emotional math that I was doing. All of these movies seemed like everything else outside of Albuquerque was where I needed to be. That life was cooler in Chicago. Because all these movies were set. Well, in the fucking public their their school library, not public, but their school library in Breakfast Club. I oh, I thought it might as well. You might as well have said um, they go to school at, in the in the Met or at the Guggenheim. I thought it was like the most artistic building I'd ever seen in my life. A hundred percent, which made me want to go to Chicago for school, which I did. Like me choosing to really? go to Northwestern, me choosing to go to Northwestern. After I saw Ferris Bueller, I was like, uh, "That's where I I need to be. <laughs> I need to be in that city because it felt mm-hmm. new wave. It yeah. felt post punk, and that's what I was getting into. I was weaning myself out of the heavy metal of my seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth grade years, and yeah. I was moving into more new wave and post punk stuff. All the music that's in these movies that we're going to talk about today." And Albuquerque back in the in the early 80s just felt like the end, uh, like not the end of the world, but the edge of the world. You know what hmm. I mean? It had its own strange culture and every other movie, you know, there was nothing. Uh, how can I say this? Because I'm going to edit this down. Uh, there just it didn't seem to be anything cool about Albuquerque and all these teens that I was watching on movies and television who got to live these exotic lives. I was like, just get me to that. Get me out of this like desert cowboy, odd hippie town. And, mm. you know, and I, I love the frontier diner. I love my friends. I love going to see heavy metal shows at Tingley Coliseum, but get me the fuck out of here. And well, so that, I was in Virginia was- beach and I mean, that's, that's a destination (laughs) resort town for some people. And I thought the same thing that you did. So I wonder if it's about that experience of that very teenage experience that, that uh, if only I were somewhere else, I could live the cool life I meant to live and, and everything would be better. I I mean, I don't know. I'm guessing the kids that (laughs) went to uh, what was the school in fame, which I also thought would solve all my problems. If I could go to, um, what is it? The performing arts school, I guess. I don't even know what school that was modeled after. Or Rydell High in Greece. I, I remember specifically thinking that if my school was made of brick and had steps going up to the front main entrance, <laughs> that instantly everything would be cooler. We'd all be cooler. And like my, I'd have a cool click and this, that, and the other. So I don't know if it was... Certainly Chicago looked bigger city than Albuquerque or Virginia beach, Virginia beach is um, it's got the boardwalk and uh, it's a lot like Myrtle beach and a lot of those East coast beach towns. So there's the boardwalk area. And I mean, that's cool and has its own scenic loveliness, but um, for the most part, it's spread out suburbs. It's a sprawling, massive suburb uh, that didn't have a lot of cultural things to go to growing up. I mean, we used to take a bus. I would get on, buses or finally when one when your one friend drove and could get a hold of a car and go into Norfolk which had a lot of sketchier areas but Ghent um and where the narrow was it was one of those old single screen movie theater houses and I mean they were playing Rocky Horror Picture Show late at night and The Wall and um Spinal Tap which I did think was a real band and I did tell Michael McKean <laughs> <laughs> you did? What was his I was like, I don't even know. I 
was so like I had snuck out to take a bus to see this like midnight screening um, with people. Did I take a bus that time or was I with friends that drove? I can't remember, but I was. Um, I don't want to say anything that makes it sound like he's old. He's not. He's not old. But I was. I was young and naive and really had not seen a lot of um, any kind of fringe. Uh, theater, concerts, movies, any of that stuff. Uh, so yeah, I was, I was very, I was very confused. <laughs> I think you're right about the point though of the, of the teenage wonderlust. I think you, you nailed it with the, you. It, there's a, there's a natural process that we have to go through where we do, we need that wonderlust to get us somewhere else. And, uh, I think that that's part of like, like teenage evolution. That was a really interesting point that you said that you felt the same way in Virginia beach as I did in Albuquerque, New Mexico, because I think that's just the teen angst. I think that's just part of the teenage experience. All right. Speaking of the teenage experience and Ray referenced this one before, oh God, it's a huge one. Because when you hear Don't You Forget About Me by Simple Minds, that can only mean mean one thing. The Breakfast Club is a 1985 American teen comedy written, produced, and directed by John Hughes. It stars Emilio Estevez, Anthony Michael Hall, Judd Nelson, Ringwald, and Ali Sheedy as teenagers from different cliques who spend a Saturday in detention. The soundtrack includes songs by Wang Chung, My Friend in Real Life, E.G. Daily, and Simple Minds. This song, Don't You Forget About Me, might be, I think, the biggest 80s soundtrack teen new wavy song of all time. Probably. I mean, you you have to admit that it is a pretty fantastic moment, let alone if you're seeing it at the age of the characters when he walks out of the end across the field and that song rises up. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. I still love that film. I still love what it said about different groups of people and crossing over and the really dark stuff about uh, Anthony Michael Hall, you know, suffering with anxiety and depression over... Um, his grades and all of that, and yet still, and this one didn't have anybody making a hot girl get drunk to sleep with them. But my boys again said to me they were number one. They thought Ali Sheedy looked a lot cooler before the shit makeover, where you have to look like they were like. He, they were like, why would they make her look like everyone else? She looked cool, and I was like, yes, this is correct. And I don't know what I was thinking when I was fourteen. And then secondly, they could not understand why Molly Ringwald likes. Bender, they were like, he's kind of a dick. And I was like, right, yeah, yeah, I know, but he's, but you know, he's been through a lot. I mean, like, didn't you see the scene where he was burned with a cigar by his dad? And they were like, right, but he's still a dick. <laughs> I was like, oh my you're God. You're so much healthier than me. <laughs> Do you think that Bender and Ringwald stood the test of time after the, uh, the story of the movie ends? Did they, did they make it as a couple? into the into the school year or did they break up a week later they broke up a week later one of my fa- yeah totally and one of my favorite lines in in it is that is when who asks her like are you even going to talk to us in the hall when we see you tomorrow and she Anthony says Michael Hall and she says probably not mm-hmm. i had i went through different periods in junior high and high school where uh and even uh, uh, elementary school was about split half and half where I was fairly well liked verging on what you would call popular. Um, not necessarily like 
like mean girls popular, not like the top cheerleader or something like that, but well liked and popular and then completely not liked and bullied. Um, and I was never entirely sure what caused the shift. It would be like a ripple that just became a wave. And then again, going through junior high and into high school, there were all these, I had all these different periods. It was not, um, uniform where my status was. It seemed to change sometimes by my doing and often not by my doing, which I found very frightening um, <laughs> and couldn't quite figure out. But um, wait, why did I bring that up? Because we were talking about the- We're talking about clicks club. and yeah, types. I had, there was a period of time, probably I want to say eighth, ninth, and 10th, actually more ninth and 10th, where uh, I sort of fell out of favor for whatever reason. I had good friends that I'm still friends with to this day that always were my friends. Um, so I was never alone and it wasn't that awful, but the popular people just didn't, I fell out of favor with them. And there were guys, one or two girls, but mostly guys that wanted to hang out with me secretly. We were not making out as far as I could tell, they were not even attracted to me. I have, or maybe they were and were not sure what to do with that. I, I don't know, but they frequently had very popular girlfriends, but thought I was funny. They wanted to come over. My mom wasn't, my mom was a newly divorced single mom. And so she wasn't home a lot. And people knew that about my house, which is not a great thing. Um, as a 13 year old girl <laughs> or 15. And, uh, so people would come over, but it, uh, I'm, I'm incredibly thankful that it was not a situation where everybody was trying to, uh, take advantage of me or I didn't get in any, um, sticky situations in that, in that way. But I remember being very touched by that moment when, when he asked Molly Ringwald, are you going to talk to us tomorrow? Because there was, uh, there was a guy who specifically told me, um, that he was not going to pretend like he was friends with me when we're, whenever we're in school. What was that dude's name? <laughs> that son of a bitch. <laughs> I'm not going to say. Okay. I'm not gonna say. That's totally fair. I'm not going to say, and you know why? Because he died a terrible, tragic death oh. soon after oh. high school. And I've always thought, like, I don't need to karmically bring anything else on him. <laughs> Understood. That, that is very fair. I will say this about my own Breakfast Club experience at the Albuquerque Academy. Because <laughs> I went to that school, I grew up by Sandia High School. Because mm -hmm. when you grow up in Albuquerque, the shorthand way of saying where you live is the closest high school to you. So that's how we, back, back in the 80s, you would say, I live near Highland, or I live near Valley, or I live near Matador, or whatever, or Manzano, whatever. I, I grew up by Sandia High School, which is right in the middle of the Heights. And the, uh, then the Albuquerque Academy was on the outskirts of the city and it was a 300 acre campus. It was all the, it was the children of all the power brokers in Albuquerque, all the doctors, all the lawyers, uh, the, the sons of people that own the big businesses and sons, sons and daughters of, of people like that. It seemed like every other kid's parents were doctors and lawyers. And so it, it was overwhelmingly preppy. And there wasn't a ton of nuance in there. Now, I wasn't the most popular. I wasn't the most well-liked. I wasn't the most athletic. But everyone dug me. And I had my own weird position within our class because I was the kid who was allowed to go to every single concert. Just for, mm. my, my mother worked at the Un University of New Mexico Hospital uh, right there by UNM. 
and uh, she was busy. And as long as I kept my grades up, I was allowed to go to every single concert. So my identity was I'm music guy. I'm not a musician, but if you want to, if you want someone to go to ZZ top with, or if you want someone to go see Ozzy Osbourne with, I'm your guy. And so that gave me like an odd, I think an odd street cred uh, mm-hmm. because even a lot of the rich kids weren't allowed to do that. And in our school, because it was, there were only 90 odd kids in my class. Everyone knew each other. 90 so, in your whole, in, in my whole, whole class. No, in, in the whole, yeah, it's a prep school. So we had, I think, 92. Six, over 600. Right. I would have, I would have drowned in that. Had I gone to, had I gone to Sandia high school or I, had I gone to Highland high school, that would have been my experience. But I, you know, I was in a, in, I knew everyone and the boys, we all started together in sixth grade. So, um, then it was, you know, 50 of us and the girls came in ninth grade. That's how that school worked back then. But the point being like, there weren't a ton of, there weren't a ton of different clicks. Our school was horrifically jockey. We were the soccer powerhouse in New Mexico. And I think that that's actually still true to this day. Were you an athlete? Are you an athlete? Are you a person? I, I am. I'm weird. I played baseball. I wasn't great at it. I wasn't horrible at it. I was fine at it. And I, I still play basketball to this day. Like I'm athletic. I love sports, mm-hmm. but I wasn't a good soccer player. And, and the premium in, at the Albuquerque Academy was soccer, soccer, soccer. They won the state championship three of the four years when I was, you know, from ninth to ninth grade. Oh, on. Wow. Yeah, they were, they were crazy. Um, but the point of our school was to get everyone to go to Harvard, Yale, Brown, Dartmouth, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. So, I just hated I just hated the rich preppy kids because that was that was the overwhelming that was the overwhelming archetype at my school. Why did you hate them? Oh well, that was just my own neuroses. That was just my own compare and despair issues. Yes, because yeah, my because I my I was raised by a single mom. My mom, you know, was a nurse anesthetist at at UNM. She worked her butt off. You know, most of my friends, you know, lived in those fancy houses along Rio Grande Boulevard. And, you know, we were just in a modest house in the Heights. Uh, you know, life was, act- in retrospect, life was really good. I got an insane education that got me to Northwestern. But culturally, I I wanted the Ali Sheedy's of the world. Ali Sheedy and Breakfast Club is Silver Lake to me. I didn't have enough Silver Lake people in Albuquerque. And that's what I want. And I got that when I got to college. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Because the, the outcasts in Albuquerque at that time I mean, part of the reason that I loved heavy metal is because I felt different uh, for some reason. And heavy metal in the 80s was the currency in New Mexico. I think uh, in 94 Rock and Rock 108, that's mostly what they played was was Judas Priest and Van Halen and Rush mm. and, and all that kind of stuff. But I just, that's part, all, I'm, this is a long way of reiterating the point I made earlier that I just couldn't wait to get out of there because I felt like I hadn't <laughs> found my tribe yet. Yeah. You know, and Breakfast Club is so much about finding your tribe. Yeah, I, I agreed. I mean, I definitely I kept identifying with different people in in the movies, and like I said, I wasn't. I sort of like you know, I wasn't the most hated, and I wasn't the most bullied, and I also wasn't the most popular. And at times, I was very popular among certain groups of people, and not liked by that group. It's interesting that you feel like you would have drowned in a class of six hundred. I was talking to both of my kids are in very small like small like 60 or less of the whole grade as well um i mean you had 90 but smallish and um if you are singled out or bullied or anybody is not invited even to a birthday party everyone knows 
Yeah, right. Uh Everyone knows. I mean, their classrooms have like 12 people. So if you didn't get a Valentine, everyone knows. Do you know what I mean? And I was telling them that everyone celebrates how close knit you could be. You went to, you said you knew these boys since sixth grade and isn't that great. I kept thinking in my head, yeah, but is there any room to fly out of the nest and decide like, you know what? I don't actually really like Jeremy that more or that much anymore. And I would like to only spend time with Chris because we have more in common. Like if in, in my school, even when I, what, if some group of people didn't like me, you know, and the whole ridiculous high school, who, who knows why you got made fun of today kind of crap, there still was another 500 people I could be friends with and go sit with it was it would take a lot to be outcast by all 630 of them um yeah so. well that was that, that it was almost impossible to to uh, there, there was very little bullying at uh, at my high school uh again because wow. we all knew each other and because the, the the teachers there i mean it was a college prep school so the whole goal is getting everyone to a great school and the teachers were pretty good about keeping people in line i was lucky because people liked me you know, again, I'm not the smartest. I'm, I'm certainly not the most attractive. I'm definitely not the richest. But you know, uh, the older kids liked me because they could they could count on me to go to concerts with them. Sure. Or I would have been the only kid in the school that went to see Deep Purple the night before. So I would always have people surrounding me saying, "How was it?" and stuff like right. that. So yeah. I, I, I escaped a lot of the tribe stuff uh, when I was in high school. If I'm honest about it. now, I'm going to throw another. Talk about a movie that's about finding your tribe. Richard's going to play Million Miles Away by the Plimsolls. And this is one of my favorite high school movies from the 80s. Valley Girl. Valley Girl is a 1983 American teen romantic comedy about a girl from the valley who falls for a punk rock dude from Hollywood. The film was directed by Martha Coolidge. And it stars Nicolas Cage, Deborah Foreman, and my friends in real life, E.G. Daly and Cameron Dye. Notable songs from this insane soundtrack include I Melt With You by Modern English, Johnny Are You Queer by Josie Cotton, and of course, Million Miles Away by The Plimsolls. Did you see um, Valley Girl when it came out? Yes, I did. Um, I don't remember if I saw that one in the movie theater or on VHS. <laughs> um, okay. I, I can't quite remember. Um, but uh, yeah, I, lo- I saw it. I loved it. I did not see the remake. So, didn't the remake come out fairly recently? Okay. I don't know the state of that because of the, the quarantine or the coronavirus and if it was just, they're just delaying it. But mm-hmm. yes, they have remade it. It's a musical. Ah. I think that uh, oh my god it's not Christmas. there was it was reviewed and it was reviewed in the New York Times so it's was okay, at so least it's given out. to critics but I don't know okay. if that means they're holding it for theatrical release or not I don't know so do you know if the premise of that movie is that the Deborah Foreman character has grown up and that is now played by oh my god I cannot believe I'm blanking on her name uh, she was married to my buddy Chris. Uh, she's not Christine Applegate. She is from Clueless. She is blonde. She is. Oh, Alicia Silverstone. God, thank you. What an idiot. See, I'm... I love Alicia. I did uh, a show. I did six episodes of a show that never aired with her. She was great. Uh, well, I, get, I think she's the grown up mom now. Yeah. She's the grown up Valley girl, and she's telling her teenage daughter about her experience in high school, and then it cuts to like a musical about Valley girl. Is that the deal? That seemed to be the setup that I was reading. Yes. Well, the part part of the part of the reason that Valley Girl hit me like a ton of bricks when it came out was this soundtrack. 
Because again, as I referenced it's before, it's a great soundtrack. I'm a metal guy, but I'm st- as I'm getting older, I'm starting to discover new wave. I wear an Iron Maiden shirt to school every day, but I secretly love Depeche Mode and New Order. Uh, <laughs> I I went to see. I took Laura Gregg to see Ozzy Osbourne with Metallica as the opener, but I am discovering the replacements, and I'm discovering um, just all the fun British new wave bands and Valley girl fucking crushed it. And that world of Hollywood, the punk rock world of Hollywood was beyond exotic to me. And a reason why I wanted to come out here because I knew that it, that, that that movie was sort of grounded in a truth about what was gone in, in Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. I loved that movie. I'm trying, I'm sitting here thinking like, did that one also have a message where you have to get the girl drunk to make out with her? Um, <laughs> well, well, kind of, but it was, the, but that movie was very much about social strata and you can only date people in your tribe, in your clique. And then even within that, you know, the hotter you are, the, the better your boyfriend or girlfriend is going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she was really breaking the mold by uh, going after Nicolas Cage. Yes. Yes. I was very fascinated by movies like that that had to do with, like, breaking out of your um, cast that you're in. Um, like, uh, I mean, Outsiders also deeply yep. affecting because of that. Um, this movie makes me laugh, too, because they they really put up an artificial wall between the Valley and Hollywood. Like, like it's like there's some, like, physical barrier. <laughs> Yes. Right. Yes. There are little mountains, but, um, I'm, I live in studio city right now. I'm closer to the Hollywood Y than I was when I lived in Silver Lake. So, yeah, you know, I was very surprised when, when I moved here, I lived in Burbank for the first 12 years and I was very surprised and pretty much mocking people behind their backs who still would talk to like, Oh, the Valley and still acted like it was not as cool. Um, it just, I, I I remember thinking like, are you in an eighties movie? Like, what are you? How? <laughs> they're like, well, that's the, you know, that's what Clueless is making fun of. It's like it's all malls and this, that, and the other. It's like I don't know. There's pockets of interesting people everywhere, and there's pockets of assholes everywhere. Um, I mean, I have I had moved here from Brooklyn, where I still had Manhattan friends that wouldn't go to Brooklyn, and I was in Williamsburg, which now I can't even afford to get off the train there. But at the time, it was like a juice bar. And a bunch of us living in illegal lofts. Um, and okay, let, so. let's go. Let's go back a little bit because I want to hear two. I want to hear two things. One, I want to hear what part of Burbank did were you living in for those twelve years? Kenwood Street that connects the Taco Bell to Don Cucos. <laughs> so you were living in the shadow of the Warner Brothers studio. Yeah, I was uh, because I was. I I was. I got cast in a pilot called I'm with her um, about Chris Henshey's real life dating Brooke Shields. Um, and uh, they honestly thought like they were going to get a. I, no one thought I had a chance. And then I got cast and then the show got picked up immediately and I had to move to Los Angeles um, and I didn't know a soul. And I had lost my license, not lost it <laughs> illegally, but um, it had expired years ago because I didn't need it in D.C. or New York. Um, and so I came out. They put me in the... Um, the uh, Oakwoods? Yeah, They put the you Oakwood, in the Oakwood apartment? Right, on the other side of, of uh, um, Warner Brothers on that yep. big hill. Yep. And I... And I used to get in trouble too because I would roller skate to work. I'd come flying down that hill and um, almost go into the street all the time. 
So then I did the pilot there, we get picked up and I still didn't have a license. And everyone's like, you have to get your license and get a car. Number one, I'm very stubborn. Cause I was just like, it's a city. They have public transportation. I've looked on it. They even have a Metro. I looked, it's fine. And everyone's like, no. And then I, and at that time, no Ubers, but I was like, worst case scenario, you have to take a cab to a party, whatever. So I thought it was all going to be fine. Number one, stubborn. Number two was I had found out that if your license is expired for more than two years and you are now in a different state than you had it originally, you have to take the whole driving and written test again, like you're 16 and wait for an appointment and all that. It was like, I don't have time for that shit. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. So I then moved to, I met, um, Joel Moore, the fantastic actor, Zachary Levi, um, who else? Tim, these wonderful uh, guys that became good friends of mine. And they were sharing this house that I moved into on the other side of Warner Brothers. I was like, oh, perfect. Cause I can still just walk to work. Cause I refuse to get a license in a car. So then I lived there for 12 years and for the show, I just walked to Warner Brothers and walked back and I took buses to some of the, um, it was on ABC, ABC parties, uh, like all dressed <laughs> Los Angeles city buses. Oh yeah. Purely out of stubbornness because they would give me money and they were like, can you just take a car? We're going to, they would give me money to do a car service. They didn't send a car for whatever reason back then, but they were like, you know, we're going to give you a per diem, whatever to go to this ABC party. And I would be like, good. Cause I'm going to Kukuru. Um, <laughs> get on the bus and then get off like a stop early. And I remember going to the gold, a golden globe party. And, um, I had, I think I took a bus there and then realized that the buses don't run anymore at that time, wherever like giant event place they were at. And the, uh, did, couldn't call a cab. Like, I forget why. I don't think I had a cell phone and, um, just, I needed a cab because I wanted to leave the party. It got overwhelming as all entertainment parties do to me, um, fairly early. And I, Jennifer, Jennifer Love Hewitt was on one of her millions of hit shows then. And she was standing next to me at the bar and I had kind of physically and spiritually and mentally departed the building. Like in my head, I think it was clear that I, had had enough. It was just too much for me. And, um, she, I, she wasn't even introduced me to me. She just leaned over and she said, do you need to, do you need to get out of here? Do you need to go home? I said, yeah, but I don't, I don't, I don't have a way to, the buses aren't coming. And I asked the, one of the uh, guys at the door, uh, the bouncers, like if I could use someone's phone to try to call a cab and they won't let me. And I was like, it's fine. I had friends there by the way, but they didn't want to leave. It was a golden globe party. And so they were having fun. And they weren't assholes. It was a room of like 2000 people. I didn't even know where they were. And she said, I'll take, she goes, I want to get out of here too. She was like, I will take you home. It's uh, let me give you a ride home. Um, I was like, really? Uh, thanks. And I knew she was, so I didn't feel like I was in danger. Um, and, uh, she said, give me five minutes to grab my friend. And she goes, and then I'll meet you at that exit. And we both pointed to this exit. Well, it turns out I wish I knew what event space this was. The space was one of those ones that's what's the word after octagonal, like even more signs. <laughs> like, sure. Multitagonal. Yes. And like each VOM had a door. It was very circus tenty shaped. So there was no orient and the bar was in the middle, an enormous bar in the middle. And you couldn't orient yourself to figure out which door is it that I came from that she was pointing to because I had to go tell my friend I was leaving. 
apparently both of us had the same experience of walking door to door of this enormous place and trying to figure out which door either of us had meant. And uh, hours went by. Um, and I think I borrowed someone's cell and called um, Burbank's yellow taxi cab company and got home at like two in the morning. Now, I, ne- I didn't think she screwed me. I didn't think she didn't come out to find me. I assumed the door wasn't there. I'm probably at a small the, the self-loathing part of me probably was in there too, going like, why did you think some A-list star was giving you a ride home? It's like, whatever. I go to work the next day. We had to shoot um, on, I'm, uh, on I'm With Her at the Warner Brothers stages. And I have a dozen white roses in my dressing room with a card from her that said, I looked for you for over an hour. I feel horrible that you must have felt stranded. I owe you a ride for the rest of my life. Love, Jennifer. Love, Hewitt. How class act is that? Wow. How that, is that? Wow. That is J Lo Hugh, <laughs> decent human being. That's Everyone my takeaway. That, and my I'm going to add to it. She is. We have learned something tremendous today. And I love that. <laughs> I, they, I can unpack. There's so much about that story to unpack. And the, <laughs> starting off with the fact that I miss going to Don Cucos. Let me just put that out there. And I can't I wait. I love for this. Don Cucos. Of course. I, and I love the fact that you lived around the corner from Don Cucos. Yeah, I did. <laughs> Toluca Lake Strong. Yeah, oh, my yeah. God. All right. We're rounding things out. Let me give you another movie that really made me happy that I was going to Northwestern University in Chicago, Illinois. Oh, when you hear In Your Eyes by Peter Gabriel, I mean, come on. We're all standing outside the window with a boombox over our head. It is Say Anything, a 1989 American teen rom-com written and directed by Cameron Crowe. The film follows the romance between Lord Dobler, the Q's, he's an average student, and Diane Quartz, played by the legendary Ioni Sky. She's the class valedictorian, and the story chronicles their relationship immediately after their graduation from high school. The soundtrack includes songs like Within Your Reach by The Replacements, Stripped by Depeche Mode, Skanked to the Beat by Cusack Pals Fishbone, and, of course, this song, In Your Eyes. That's another, going back to my point about your boys and watching these 80s movies, this is my point about tricking a girl into liking you. Mm. When he's standing in front of the, uh, in front of Ioni Sky's, uh, and, and at this point, Ioni Sky is like the pixie girl. Before they've come up with the term manic pixie girl, it's Ioni Sky for us Gen X dudes. And so here's the Cusack trying to trick her into getting back together with him just by playing their song with the boombox and that lovely khaki trench coat that he was wearing. I think all of us Gen X boys have done a version of that move at some point in our lives and i know that you like the movie say anything so i would love to hear your thoughts i love it you know it's funny hearing you say that because i didn't think that one was uh, you're right there's an element of trying to manipulate someone into coming back to you yes that was like the whole movie to me felt like he was scrambling to convince ioni sky that they should be together yeah, I mean, I got. I sh- and I should rewatch this one as well. I haven't. I have not watched this one with the boys. But I guess I thought at the time that it was more about um, trying to prove to someone that you that you really uh, that you really cared enough to try. Um, mm-hmm. It's so funny. A different because t- I now see what you're talking about the manipulation. I definitely never cottoned to the whole like you have to get people women drunk in order to make out with them. Although. I don't know how serious some of your podcast 
get. All right, did you read um, Drinking a Love Story? That nope. incredible book. Um, mm-hmm. Oh my god, it's I have it somewhere. I can't think. What is that damn author's name? She's fantastic. I shouldn't say damn. She's passed away. But um, it, she, it's it's an autobiography, uh, and she has a whole chapter talking about not just um, media, but societal's messages to women and to boys that we don't inherently want to be sexual. We have to be manipulated into it. And then we absorb those messages. And she, I think she's like 40 when she said she realized when she she became sober that she had actually never had a sexual experience in her entire lifetime where she wasn't at least tipsy. Yeah. Buzzed enough to make out with somebody. And it was some, even with people that like she was dating, that it wasn't like you need, you don't need an excuse. Like you're, it's it's not a stranger at a party where you'd like to tell yourself tomorrow you were drunk, like boyfriends even. And, but that it had to do with ingesting this constant message of, well, you need to have some, some crutch to lean on to psychologically tell yourself why you let go, why you let go for a second. (laughs) Because of my time in Los Angeles, I've been here for 30 years. I have, I'm have i blessed to, to know a lot of sober people because uh, L.A. is a place that attracts dreamers and narcissists and crazy people. And sometimes they uh, that those things uh, end up with a little bit of a drinking problem, then they get sober. And I have so many people who say the same thing, that they never had a sexual experience without alcohol or drugs or both. Uh, crazy right well you know but i but i totally understand that again going back to the way that we were raised in the 80s i mean i'm a latchkey kid so i was raised by my television and movies of course and movies like we're talking about so everything is a is a crazy like everything is princes and princesses and then the rest of you are fucked and good luck and so well you know here's what you need to do if you want to like make someone love you yeah. And you know, when you, when you asked me like, what were some of my favorite albums in high school? And I had them, uh, you know, U2 and Oingo Boingo and 10,000 Maniacs, but the ones I clung to that the little white writing was worn off of the clear tapes were soundtracks because they did movies and television was my constant comfort. It was what was raising me often. And not that my mom's not wonderful. She is. Um, but I, I had a lot of, time to live in these fantasy worlds and i clung to them um as some vision of what i could be of some vision of what could happen with my life once i got out of here um but also these roadmaps like you're saying of trying to understand and my takeaway from say anything viewed through the lens then of the girl i was then was see if some people like you enough and think you're special enough they will actually make an effort Versus guy who has a six pack of beer and wants to know if I'll drive with him to get more beer. And that's somehow code for we could have sex. Like, so for me, like even bothering to have the boom box outside of the window and trying to, trying to state your case of why you are a good prospect to be somebody's partner was an, elevated style of dating <laughs> that I was, that was above what I was seeing around me for sure. I totally understood. And and from my point of view, a lot of it was uh, from Cusack's point of view, I'm not the rich kid. I'm not the greatest athlete. I'm not the valedictorian like you are, but I love you. And I think we should be together. And I don't think society is going to like it, but let me try. Like that's sort of the, that was sort of my takeaway. Let me, 
We've been talking for 58 minutes and four seconds. So I'm going to wrap things up because I don't want to keep you too long because again, I could talk to you for an entire week about Albuquerque alone, but let me just, <laughs> let me just paint a picture of, of who I was again uh, in the eighties in my soundtrack as I'm driving down Lomas or I'm driving down central or I'm driving from my house to the Academy uh, was ACDC, Iron Maiden, Rush, Van Halen. Anytime I hear any of those songs, I am right back at the Caros on the corner of Montgomery and Wyoming. I am right back at the frontier where we spent every Friday and Saturday night in high school. We would start our nights there and we would end up there at the end of the night because we would just drive. We would drive around that entire city on Friday and Saturday nights. I mean, it wasn't that big back then because I had friends who, because of the school that I went to, I had friends that lived all over the city most of them in the Valley, but you know, so you drive from your house in the Heights, you go pick up your friends in the Valley. Then you drive to the frontier and you do that triangle all night long. And then you drive to, you hear about some party that's up in Tanawan, some rich kid who's, uh, who lives up near the Tanawan country club. And, and then you go drive back to the frontier at the end of the night. And you're always listening to 94 rock and rock 108 and heavy metal was the currency of the day on those two channels. So that is why I always post those things on anytime I hear Def Leppard photograph, which is such a fucking Albuquerque song to me. Um, anytime I hear the trooper by Iron Maiden, I mean, I'm just taken right back. I can smell Albuquerque and I can smell the roasted chilies in the air. <laughs> I can, I can smell what the Coronado mall smelled like in the eighties. Um, I could smell orange Julius, you know, it was, that was just such a huge part of my life. That is a long way of winding up to say, before we, I let you go, I just need to know if you have discovered a restaurant there that you love of any kind in Albuquerque. Well, everyone knows about the famous Los Poblanos farms and they deserve the reputation they have. I, uh, El Campos, is that what they're calling the new, the restaurant portion of it? Cause you used to eat in the old house with just like four little I, tables. I, I don't know because that was just Jay Remby's house in the eight. Okay. <laughs> it's um, it is still world class cuisine. I just think the food is amazing, and you can't beat the setting. And peacocks still walk by, and the two orange marmalade cats that live there. Um, if you're talking a little more like, I want to. Uh, feel like I'm eating a little more local food and hang out with locals. Um, I love Tia Betty Blues. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, fantastic. They're great. <laughs> Have you been to Mary and Tito's on Fourth Street? Yes. Yes. They're awesome. They're also great. And, um, what's the pharmacy with the diner in the back is Durant's. Awesome. Yeah. Durant's they're mm -hmm. great. Or Durant's. And Durant's. Um, and I'm liking the, some of the newer ones that maybe you don't know, like, uh, uh, the feel good, delicious. Um, so is, um, fork and fig is delicious. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of places. Um, Farino's pizza. We st Farina's, Farina's pizza. Yeah, we go there a lot. And I love to eat at the Grove and I really wish they were open for dinner. They're only open for lunch. You, are you guys down with Dion's pizza? Dion's pizza? Yeah. We have never had it. Bob really likes going to Farina's. So we mostly just get pizza there. Dion's is my favorite pizza on the planet earth. It was a, it's a local Albuquerque chain. Now they have uh, one in Denver and one in Tucson, but that was growing up. Then it was always voted number one in New Mexico. Dion's pizza. They're all, it's all over the city. Okay. Cause when I, I do go back every once in a while, uh, my friends and I will pick a, like a heavy metal concert to go to, uh, every once in a while. So I've flown back to see Iron Maiden there. I flew back last year to see black Sabbath. And when I get to town, what I have to do right away is eat at the frontier. Then I have to eat a Blake's lot of burger 
then I have to go to Sadie's, uh, and then I have to have Dion's. And I have to have those four before I can then branch out. So I have no idea what any of the new places are. Because then, because then I might not get to Los Cuates or I might not get to El Pinto uh, if I don't have enough time. So, um, but you you must know about me. New Mexican food is what that is. My number one, my favorite food on the planet is New Mexican cuisine. Now, did you were you anti driving to Santa Fe and going to like Pascal's? My move uh, when I took Meredith three. No, I took Julie Arias to prom in my junior year. Uh, we drove up to Santa Fe for dinner. Um, and I forget where we, we eat at the parachute. Um, but that was, uh, you know, it was easy to drive to Santa Fe. So I don't know. What was the restaurant that you just said? Pascal's been there forever on a corner right by the plaza. Um, delicious New Mexico, uh, food cuisine. The shed was the shed was the big one back then. That was the big, uh, place in Santa Fe to go. Um, Ray, I think this is the greatest podcast that I've done so far. I've done a whole... <laughs> I've done a whole. I know, but the bar you've you've set a new. The bar is high now. You have reestablished the bar. You (laughs) this has been so fun for me. um, But I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart, Ray. Um, You have crushed it today, as you are crushing it on an incredible show. And I hope you are enjoying every fucking moment of this experience because uh, you're on a Cadillac program and it's just such a delight for those of us who are fans uh, of that show. Um, and, you. and again, you're, you are tremendous. Thank you so much, Brendan. Is there so anything great that to see you? Uh, it's, it is so great to see you too. Is there anything that you would like to promote or something else out there that people should know about or... Well, because we're talking about these 80s movies, you should check out um, Mike Sachs. Uh, I've now done two of them, Passable and Pink. And um, God damn it, why can't I think of... Um, he does these <laughs> sort of satires that are um, audible originals and they're feature length. Uh, oh, he's writing the other one. That's why I can't find the title. He's writing the other one will be a 90s one. But Passable and Pink with... Um, Gillian and who else is in it? Um, Gillian Jacobs. I mean, really, really funny where he's trying to write some of the wrongs. It's all the John Hughes films put into one, but he's trying to um, give a nod towards some of the discrepancies that we all watch now because he watches them with his daughters. Those are very funny and those are on Audible. Um, I also have another Audible original called The Long Con um, that's a 10-part series where I play a detective coming out and um, what else? Oh, a fantastic psychological horror film that should be on Netflix soon starring James Norton and Amanda Siegfried along with uh, Michael O'Keefe and um karen allen f murray abraham and it's from the great sherry springer berman um and bob pulcini who did uh american splendor fantastic fantastic that'll that's called things heard and seen and that's phenomenal be out soon yeah that's phenomenal well you you deserve it all because you uh you are one of a kind and I'm just so thrilled that you took the time uh, to do this with me today. So again, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thanks for having me, Brendan. Okay. And to the rest of you, thanks for tuning in, for liking, subscribing, telling your friends we are growing exponentially. Until the next time, cats and kittens. Cats and kittens.